Father God, you are our God. Hallowed be your name, your name which is greater than any other name. You are the only one that we run to. You are the one that we want to rejoice with when, when we are receiving blessing upon blessing. We, you're the one we want to share that with because from you, all good things come. And when we grieve, you are the one we want to grieve with. Lord, I lift up our dear brother and sister, Ethan and Melody, and I lift up their kids as they wrestle with what has transpired. Knowing that just as surely as we stand here singing praises to you, we know that you knitted their dear daughter in Melody's womb and that you know her and that she is with you and that there will come a day where there will only be rejoicing around this, but right now there is pain and there is grief, and God, we just give that to you and know that you are with us in it. I pray for their comfort. I pray that you would strengthen them in the coming days. I pray that their songs of worship to you would be filled with every bit of emotion that is in them. And I pray that we would support them well. And not only them, God, but other people this week who have received just really hard news. You are the one we go to. You are the one who comforts. We are to be your hands and your feet, God, so let us comfort as we have been comforted. Lord, we trust you in all things. We do not understand all things. We grieve and we wait for the day where there will be no more tears. There will be no more weeping. There will be only songs of rejoicing. But Lord, right now, in the midst of the waiting, be with us, be near to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So Psalm 58, when I had the choice of Psalms from this week of reading, I looked over them and I told Robbie that I was, I, I felt like most of them were, I, I've preached that sermon this summer, i preached that sermon sermon this summer. I was like, I feel like I'm kind of like going to be like a broken record. And, but there was one psalm that stood out that the Holy Spirit was like, you haven't preached this. I said, okay. And I think it's good that in weeks like this, as things have, have come and, and with what's going on in the world around us, I think it's good and right that we trust all of God's word. And I think it's good and right that we wrestle with it. And so this is a hard passage this morning. And I'm not going to go into every detail about this psalm. There's no way that I could. But I do want us this morning to look at this and say, what do we do when the psalmist says hard things? So I'm going to read it. And we're just going to go through it 
together. The, the background of this is likely David writing it as he is running from King Saul. So he, David was a faithful servant and um, had been a supporter of Saul, but Saul, as Saul began to turn, um, he turned his ire towards David and bought into lies that people were telling him about David and, and pursued him and wanted to kill him. So David is, is on the run for his life, having been betrayed by a king that he served and by friends, uh, people he called friends. And in his hiding and in his grief and his anguish, he says this, Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No, in your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear, so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. As David is, is writing this, he does a few things here. One, he's, he's calling out, he's writing to the people that were once his friends. He's making accusations of evil among them. And then he's asking God to, to intervene. And then he is declaring a prophecy that God will, in fact, do this. Look at those first couple of verses. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No, in your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. There are two big questions here that, that David is asking in these couple of verses as he's writing, um, as he's writing this. Says, do you judge rightly? And do you speak up or do you remain silent? And those two questions, do you judge rightly and do you speak up at evil, are aimed at us this morning. Remember last week when we talked about a little bit, I just mentioned how we tend to place ourselves in the story of Scripture in the place of the hero, in the place of the faithful like even if in David and Goliath, even if we don't place ourselves, like that's a common thing where people will place themselves in the place of David. But even if we don't place ourselves there, we place ourselves surely in the people that were around David, kind of cheering him on and saying, yes, the Lord has given you this victory. Like go, we're with you. And so it's easy to read this kind of psalm with that mindset that we are in the place of David writing this to others. Do you judge rightly? Do you do you decree what is right? And so we can look at that and say like, yeah, because I know I am judging rightly. It's those other people or those other Christians who think the opposite of me. They're the ones who are wrong. They're the ones who need to hear this. I'm asking this of them. But we have to ask, are, are you so sure? Are we so sure that that's where we are? The, the, if you listen to the psalmist, ask yourself, 
It's believed by, by many that, that some of this or all of this is aimed particularly at Abner. Abner was Saul's cousin, commander of the army, and then his other princes. These were formerly David's friends. And, and Abner, among others, judged David as a rebel and advocated for Saul to pursue and kill David. Many people believe that if Saul did not have the advisors he had around him, that he would not have pursued David. But he was told that he was in the right, that his cause was just. And David is saying to them, pleading them, are you sure you're judging this rightly? Are you sure, are you sure that you're seeing this correctly? I don't know about you, but I find it myself, and I see it in, in people that we tend to be far more confident in our ability to assess and to judge than we should be. Like, I, yesterday, I, I got to watch college football for the first time in a while, and it was, it was fun, and it was fun to see all the fans back and cheering, and, um, and, and it was great to watch it. And I don't know about you, but like, I tend to, when I watch football, I just... Something will happen, a play will be called, and I'm like, what in the world? Like, obviously, you should have just done this other thing. Right? Like, anybody with me? Like, you judge that? It's called the armchair quarterback. Don't lie to me. You absolutely do it. <laughs> you do it all the time. You're like, who are they, what are they paying these guys to do? Like, what in the world? Obviously, you've got to run the ball there. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. And we're so confident. And it's so ridiculous. I don't know anything compared to the coaching staff of the team I'm watching. I haven't studied one lick. I turned on the TV and watched it and be like, well, that didn't work. You should have gone the other way. And look, we do this all the time. We don't just do it with football. We do it with our school boards. We do it with our health departments. We do it with our bosses at work. We do it in extended families. We do it when we write, read a news article about something bad that happened. Like, well, why didn't they just do this other thing? We do it all the time. We are very confident in our ability to judge and assess what is right. But God is the only righteous judge. And all you have to do is read the Gospels to see how this ends for people, to see what happens when religious people who are so sure of where they stand, so sure that they even reject Jesus. I was noticing this. Just think about this for a second. Without exception, the only ones who followed Jesus in the Gospels were the ones who were willing to admit they were not good judges. There's not a single account of Jesus going to a disciple where the disciple is like sitting at the table waiting to be like, oh Jesus, I've been waiting for you. I determined rightly that this is how this was going to come about and you would be the Messiah. I'm ready to join your team. Not one. Story after story is disbelief, confusion, wonderment, awe, wrestling with what does this mean and how is this the Messiah and what does it mean that his kingdom is coming? They are wrestling constantly and the only ones who remain with him are the ones who acknowledge, I don't have it in me to judge rightly. I need help. Back to Abner. Abner flip-flops a lot in the scriptures. He's for Saul killing David. Then when Saul dies, he, he backs Ishbosheth. Um, as king, even though he knew what God had said about David. And when Ishbosheth turns on him, 
Much like Saul turned on David, he ends up helping David to gain the throne again. So he kind of does this flip-flopping all over the place. And one of the accusations made of Abner is that he wasn't really loyal to Saul or to Israel or to David, but to himself. That may or may not be true. It's also possible that Abner was, um, just felt convicted, and so he was sure about this, and then he felt convicted of that, and then he went this other direction. He felt convicted about that, and then he went this other direction. That's also possible. But regardless, he's not judging rightly in all those situations. At the very least, he very confidently backed things that were not only dishonoring to God, but were things that God had directly said would not happen. And like Abner, I see us doing the same things. Our bent is for ourselves. We have to understand that's how we're wired. Our wi- we're wired to look out for ourselves. It is only by the power of the Holy Spirit that transforms us. It's only in dying to ourselves and taking on the life of Christ that allows us to be anything but that. And we tend to side. Our pull is to side with those who side with us. And once we side with someone, once we judge them as right, then we are not easily swayed. We judge our side as right and those who oppose as wrong. But the call of Christ is to die to ourselves. And it has to be done daily. Last week we talked about isolating the the vocal track of our lives, which will rank in there of all-time illustrations that just fell like nobody knew what I was talking about. I had like two of you that knew what I was talking about after that, but oh well. But this idea of saying like, once I get rid of the distractions around me, once I get rid of what that person said to me, what do my actions look like? What does my heart look like before God? I would encourage us to expand that a little bit, especially right now. Whether that camp is a political camp or a theological camp or a whatever camp, camps are not flawless. I've had to come to grips with that a lot lately. I, 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 found, like, I felt like for a long time I would defend my theological camp. And at the same time, there were some pretty horrifying things happening in that camp, and nobody really wanted to say anything about it. People were like, well, yeah, but they're, but they're speaking the truth. And I was one of those. I was like, yeah, I don't love that, but you know what? I'm, I'm sure it's fine because they're in our camp. They're on my side. But those, that evil and that sin is everywhere. And the question is, when we see that, David's asking, he's saying to Abner, look, I know your camp, I know you bought into this, I know you have accused me and you've determined that I'm the evil one. And he asks, do you decree what is right? Do you, do, you, do you speak this? Do you speak what is right? Or are you silent on these matters? David's saying, like, you people around Saul, like, are you speaking against his persecution of me? Maybe there are some of you who are looking at this and saying, I don't think David is the enemy, Saul. I don't think we should be focusing on chasing him. There had to be people, but did they say anything? And David answers, no, in your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. Listen, this is a clear thing that when we don't speak against evil, then we are culpable. Notice David isn't writing this psalm. He's not really talking about Saul at all or to Saul at all. He's going after those behind him. People who are happy to let Saul be the vocal point to say the hard things or do the dirty work that they don't want to do and then to encourage it with their silence. 
Look, our, our culture is full. We are all more than happy to speak against the evils of the people that are not in our camp. If whatever our camp is, whatever that thing is, I can speak against those evils. When I was in that theological camp and look at that, I could tell you all the evils about all the other theological camps. But what David needed was someone inside Saul's camp to speak up. When I've been listening to a podcast of that of the camp that I identified with of just these horrible things happening and the fall of a particular leader, but you could copy and paste that over all the stories that we've heard over the last couple of years. It feels like every few weeks there's another um, leader of a mega church that, you know, we read their books and listen to their sermons and do whatever, and they fall. It turns out that behind closed doors there's all kinds of sin going on, all kinds of sin hidden. And what I noticed is during that time, that whole crew, no problem criticizing and calling out the evil in other camps, but nobody was saying anything inside. What we needed were critics from within. Listen, whatever that camp is, your camp is deaf to the criticisms of the other camp. It's ridiculous. It's gotten to a place where like nobody can say anybody has ever done anything right that wasn't a part of our camp. It's just the way, it's the way we all are and it's the way our culture has gone. What we need are Christ followers to say, in the name of Jesus, I will speak against evil even if it costs me everything right around me. What would it look like to do that this week? I just want to encourage you right now. Whatever thing that you feel like you've been identifying with, look at that and say, where is there evil here? And speak against it this week. Take seriously that God has placed you there in order to do that and speak against it. Don't remain silent. We can't because evil is very real. So David lays this out. He talks about the reality of evil and wickedness. Verse 3 says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear, so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. Look, I'm just going to summarize this in the interest of time. There's evil in the world. It is all around us. It is in our midst. It is in our own hearts. It is in our minds. It is, in, it is all around us. And it is wicked. And then there are people who are bent for destruction that they have given themselves over to that. And there is wickedness. And David's saying, like, from birth this happens to us. Speaking lies. And what's interesting is when he says they have venom like the venom of a serpent, it's destructive, it's poison, it gets in and it infects everything about us. That's what sin does. It infects everything. We don't have certain parts of us that are void of that. It, it infects like venom. And then he says, like the deaf adder that stops its ear so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or the cunning enchanter. He's talking about like these snakes that could be kind of lulled into, you know, in, in, into kind of a, a sense of passivity, you know, even though they were dangerous, like that idea that you could charm a snake or tame them or whatever. And what David is saying here is you can't tame this snake. You can't tame this evil. You can't tame the sin. There is nothing. Its ears are stopped up. It is deaf. If you try to charm us, and we try to do this, we think we can handle it. 
We think we can temper it. We think like, okay, well, I know this isn't great, but it's not as bad as this. And so I'm just going to, we can deal with this. We can, we can handle this. We can corral this. We can manage it. And we do it most in our own lives all the time with our own sin. I can handle this sin. I can, I can calm it down. I can just feed this little monster a little bit and just set it over here and it'll be fine. I'll do mostly things for God, but this, this thing, I can, I've got it under control. And David says, it's not the case. It's a poisonous viper in you that cannot be tamed. It is deaf to all of your charms. It's a poison. And there's only one who can reverse this effect. Only one who has a cure for this. And, and so David turns to him. And this is a hard passage. Like This is one of those where he talks about breaking teeth in their mouths and tearing out fangs. And what you see here is David's emotions coming out. Like we talk about how the Psalms are raw. David says things that we are not supposed to, like that's not what we are called to pray, but it is just an account of his prayers and songs and just pleading out and crying out to God. And this is one of those times it is raw. And we have to remember that, that what he has gone through, that he is on the run. The king that he was loyal to wants to murder him. People that he counted as friends are encouraging this pursuit. He's wrestling with all kinds of betrayal and confusion and fear. And I think it's one of the beautiful things that the Lord allows these things to be in Scripture because we get to see, because if you've ever been in a place where your prayers and your cries out to God have become guttural and overwhelming, maybe infused with language that you wouldn't normally use and just a heart where you're just crying out, you're like, God, why? I don't understand. Why is this happening? You can go to the Psalms and you can see David doing this as well. But look, though, what he's asking. Look, don't miss the main point of this. When he's talking about breaking the teeth and tearing out fangs, what he's saying is don't let the wicked destroy us. Don't let sin destroy us. Take away their power. Don't let the wicked rule. Do whatever you have to do, God. Don't let them cause ultimate destruction. Now here's the key. In the midst of David's emotions and his grief and his anger and his frustration and his pain, where does he go? He goes to God. He doesn't take matters into his own hands. Twice he has the opportunity to kill Saul and he doesn't. Why? Like who could blame him? If you were with David when he had a chance to kill Saul, what would you say to him? I think at the very least, what I would, I've thought about this. I think at the very least, what I would do is turn a blind eye. If I didn't encourage it, I think I would at least be like, well, hey, who could blame you? You could end all this. You could be, remember, David was the right ruler of Israel. He was going to be the king. That was the right end. How many of us in this room, knowing what God had decreed about David, knowing how evil Saul was, knowing how wrong he was, who among us wouldn't have sat with David and said, hey, maybe this is the way God is reinstating you to the throne. Maybe God has given you, he's given Saul to you. Why not? But David doesn't. doesn't because he knows that it is God alone who brings justice.
He doesn't say, I will break their teeth in your name. He says, God, you do this. Look, there is real evil all around us. Horrifying things that are happening all around us. I mean, in this, we grieve over the loss of a baby in our congregation. We know that the the murder of babies is evil. No matter what spin we want to put onto it, the the adding to the confusion and the disorientation of, of children and teenagers is evil. Unjust wars are evil. Victimizing and oppressing the poor is evil. Turning a deaf ear to those who cry out for injustice is evil. It is all over around us and, as we've said, in our own hearts. So what do we do with it? Does loving our neighbor mean that we're not bothered by the evil, that we're just saying it's no big deal? No. It is turning it over to God. And we say, God, you bring justice. Paul says in Romans 12, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So we don't take matters into our own hands. We don't turn to evil, to battle evil, we overcome evil with good. Our cry is, God, you are good. You make all things right. And faith is believing that he will do just that. As he says in verse 10, the righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. He's saying there's going to come a day where the righteous will re- rejoice. And the question that I, pops into my head is, what are they rejoicing over? Are they rejoicing over revenge? No. It says, when we see the vengeance, the righteous will rejoice at God making all things right. And we've said before that God will make everything right. Whether on the cross or in hell, we will give an account for everything. But we do not delight in the destruction of the wicked because our God does not delight. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? He's even talking to his own people, but the the Lord wants them to turn back. That should also be our desire. We should not be looking at and saying, God, bring justice in a way that we say, so take it out on them. I want them to be destroyed. We would want the justice to be received by all people through the cross. Say, God, bring justice. And let them find repentance and hope and forgiveness in the cross. We delight in the justice of God bringing about all things that are good. Like, ask yourself right now, what grieves you the most right now? All the things, I got, all the things I've been saying right now, I've got to believe that there have been things that popped in your mind that just make you angry, that make you grieve, that overwhelm you, that just make you want to scream. something that's happened to you or something that's in the world. The promise of Scripture is that God will make it right. 
The question is, do we believe him? There will come a day when we will look at those things and we will say, God has brought justice. And we will rejoice in it. And I say we will rejoice in it. It says the righteous will rejoice. Well, who then are the righteous? Because we know the scripture says that no one is righteous, not one. Only those who have been made righteous by Jesus. Only those who have received the righteousness of Christ. Only those who have turned from evil that is in our own hearts and been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. That's who will rejoice. David is talking. He obviously doesn't know how all that is going to play out, but he's talking about those who submit to God. Remember just in Psalm 51. You don't don't want all my sacrifices. You want a contrite heart. Those who come to him with that broken spirit and contrite heart. Romans 1, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So when the psalmist, when David here says in verse 11, mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous, surely there is a God who judges on earth. The the righteous will rejoice in this. And those who are righteous are ones who have been made righteous by the righteousness of Christ, by faith. It says the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. The righteous shall live by faith. It's those who trust God and say, God, it is yours. It's not people who say, God, it seems you're asleep at the wheel. We've got to figure out a way of doing this. Again, that would be like sitting there with David and being like, hey, man, we've got to do something. He's eventually going to catch you and kill you, and then you won't be king, and then all these terrible things are going to be happening. But David said, no, it's for the Lord to do that. And I don't claim to know all the answers of what that means. That is a hard thing to wrestle with. But the heart that I'm talking about is the heart that says, God, you are here. You are sovereign. My job is to be faithful to you, and you will bring justice. Paul gives an incredible description of who the righteous are and how they will function in Philippians 2. Just listen to this. When the psalmist says, surely there's a reward for the righteous, surely there's a God who judges the on earth, they're saying in that day people will proclaim, like surely God is real. They will confess who this God is. And Paul says it this way in Philippians 2, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see what's happening here? The psalmist who doesn't know who Jesus is going to be, doesn't understand what all that's going to look like. He's just saying, hey, look, there's going to come a day where everyone is going to just declare the righteousness of this God. And Paul says, yeah, it's going to happen this way. Because of the name of Jesus, we're going to see the righteousness of God. Those who have placed our trust in him, we're going to receive the righteousness of God by faith and then we will declare and glorify the Father. It's this incredible connection of these Easter eggs of saying like, yeah, you knew in part what was going to happen, but now look at what's actually going to happen. And now we only know in part what it's going to actually look like when we get there and see it face to face. 
And he says, if that's true, like all these things are true, there's going to come a day where everyone will bow, everyone will declare this God who is righteous, and they will see the work of Jesus. And as they do that, he says, therefore, since you believe that, since you hold to that, since you've placed your whole hope and trust and life in that, since that, therefore, God, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Saying, since you know that this is what God is going to do, therefore, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Come to him with a broken spirit and contrite heart. Seek a renewed spirit. Come to him. Let him do that work in you. That's what Paul says is the therefore. And then he goes on. He says, and if you're doing that as that's happening to you, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. See what he's saying there? He's saying like, since you know this is happening, let him do his work in you and this is what that work's gonna produce. You're gonna do everything without grumbling or complaining or disputing. You'll be blameless and you'll be innocent. You'll be without blemish. In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation that will keep trying to pull you over and keep trying to say, yeah, but what happens? What happens if Saul catches David? What happens if these things go wrong? What happens if this? And they keep trying to pull you over to this. He's saying, no, you're going to be blameless and innocent. And by doing that, you will be a light in the midst of darkness. And he says, holding fast to the word of life, trusting in God's promises, so that in the day of Christ, he says, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. And then he says, but you might, they, they may have been looking at that and saying, yeah, that's great, Paul, but what if? And it always comes up in our hearts, right? Okay, God, I know what you're calling me to do. I know you're calling me to forgive. I know you're calling me to be kind and to, to be just and to seek justice and to love mercy and to speak against evil and do that. But, but what if, and Paul says, continues, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. So, personalities don't change over the years. Like the same personalities that are here, the same personalities have been wired in way back then. Do you think that there weren't people in the early church when they heard that Paul was arrested that said, we're getting together, we're going, we're breaking him out? I'm looking around the room right now and I can see at least a dozen who's in that crew. And God love you, man. I, like, I, I want you there. Like if I'm in prison, like I want you there. That's great. You think that that wasn't there? You think that their hearts weren't grieved and wondering, what should we do? Like they're sitting there saying, like, imagine that scenario. Paul, you're in prison because of us. You preached the gospel to us. We received life, and now you're in prison. You could die. And Paul, anticipating that, says, even if I do. And look at the language he uses. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, Paul's not saying, hey, don't worry about it. If I die, it's not your fault. He's saying, even if 
I lose my life because of your faith. He says, I am glad and rejoice with you all. I think about the Christians across the world who are persecuted and losing their lives for their faith. And imagining them holding tightly to these words as they're being carted off from their families and their families don't know if they're ever going to see them again, of them saying to them these things, even if, even if my life should be lost. And Paul's saying, like, even if that happens, don't you give up. Don't you lose faith. Don't you take matters into your own hands. Do not, don't you abandon your first love. Don't you give in to the darkness of the world around you and take on their methods. Don't you do it. Be glad and rejoice that our king is coming. The end is not in doubt. Give thanks in all circumstances. He is returning. He is our king. Yes, there is evil in the world. Yes, we are to speak against it. But God is the only just judge and We pursue justice in accordance with him, but vengeance belongs to him. And he is returning to judge the living and the dead, and he will make things right. So be ready. If you are not in Christ, turn to him, die to your sin, die to yourself, and live to Christ. I'm going to call up Donna and Sophia right now, hopefully. Have the joy of seeing this again and having another baptism where we get to celebrate this together. Because that's what baptism is. It's one of our responses that when we say, I belong to Christ, then we go through this, we do this, and we are baptized, and we do it by immersion because we are baptized with Jesus. We participate in his death, and then we are brought back in newness of life resurrected with him. We participate with him in his death and we participate with him in his resurrection. And Paul is declaring this to them. And so he's saying, like, don't, don't forget about these things. Don't give this up. And so we're going to do that. We're going to participate here together in this baptism. And if you've been baptized, then I encourage you to remember your own baptism. And then we're going to take communion together after that. This is why we do these things, because we believe that God is who he says he is. And he has called us to be the people that he has called us to be. And we do not lose hope, because the end is not in doubt. This is why we do this. Claiming that this is what Jesus has done. Otherwise, we're just dunking people in water. But we believe that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. And we believe that he has called us not to come and watch and not to come and be entertained, but to come and die and to follow him in this life, whatever the cost. So we rejoice in that. And we rejoice as we take communion together that Jesus gave this to us. As he sat with his disciples, and again, we talk about this all the time, that they didn't know what was about to transpire, and he knew that. And so he says, do this in remembrance of me, saying, like, this, is gonna, you're, this will make a lot of sense here in another 24 hours. 
And you will need this. You will need to hang on to this and believe and remember what I have done and how I have secured all these things. How we can know that God will return and that he will bring justice. This is why we take the bread that Jesus took and he broke and he says, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And we take and we eat together. And this is why we take the cup. As he pours it out, he says, this is my blood poured out, bringing a new covenant, sealing us, the forgiveness of sins poured out for us And so we take and we drink in remembrance. Father God, we have worshipped you today. We've poured out our hearts to you. We have adored you and repented. And we are reminded as we have taken communion, we are reminded that you have bought us by the price of your own blood. And that as we do that, it's not just some ritual, but that we are participating in that. Just like as we do in our, in our baptism. That we are reminded that our life is not our own, but we've been bought with a price. We are reminded that you are who you say you are, and this is what you have done, and this is how you have secured for, your, for yourself a people. And that our, that our claim to righteousness is not found in anything but in you. God, would you please stir our hearts? This is why we worship to you. This is, this is why we listen to, to your word being preached. This is why we read your word. This is why we pray. This is why we get baptized and rejoice in that. This is why we take communion. And this is why we sing. Because you are our Father in heaven. And you are good. And you are the God who has created all things. And though we have rebelled against you, you have made a way home through the sacrifice of your Son. And you have called us to die to ourselves and to live the life of Christ. And that one day, you will come back. And you will restore all things and renew all things. And all things will be made right. And we will rejoice forevermore. Amen.